John 20, we, like I said before, we're going to wrap up our, our study through the Paul Tripp's book called All this evening. We'll be covering the last two chapters, which are extremely practical on parenting and work. Um, but I, I want us kind of at the beginning at the end to come back to an all moment, because one of the things that I don't want you to think is that uh, the idea of an all moment has to be a moment where uh, it's, it's kind of like earth shattering in the sense that um, it, there's a lot of uh, emotion and, and, and lights and, and music and I don't know, you know, just like this uh, huge thing that happens here, this, this moment takes place and it's, it's simple, but it's, it's clearly very, very profound. And it happened in the life of, of Thomas. So uh, John chapter 20, starting in verse 28, or excuse me, 26. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I think you have to announce that when you show up in a room where the doors are locked. I think you, I think you, you owe the people in the room a little bit of like explanation or something. You know, just, yeah, anyway. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do you not disbelieve? Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Talk about a aha moment, uh, a moment of all. Well, like I mentioned, these last two chapters deal with parenting and work. And they're extremely practical, um, particularly, uh, I think, on parenting. As many of you probably know, one of Paul Tripp's more well-known books is a book on parenting called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And so his chapter on that was a, a great reminder to, to me. And he starts all that chapter by just simply asking this question, if you had to paint a portrait of the ideal child you're trying to produce, what would that portrait look like? I know all of you are picturing me right now, but... (laughs) How will you know when you have been successful? Now, I think that's a great question because I I think, you know, when you hear about, okay, this is a chapter on parenting, that's immediately applicable to me because I have three of them in my home, and I can't seem to get rid of them. They keep coming back, and they're young, and you think, okay, that, that's who a, a, a chapter on parenting is about. But that second question, I think, really grabs all of us, that those of you who have children that are grown and maybe out of the home, when you look at, think about the, the, the response to that question, have I been successful? Have I been a failure? What standard... Are you using to, to answer that question? What is success and failure when it comes to parenting? As I understand it, I haven't walked through it yet, but as I understand it, that's a question you continue asking yourself long after your children leave the house. Well, Paul Tripp says that kind of naturally what we tend to do is we tend to parent without a big picture in mind. What we do, what he would call is reactive parenting. 
I'm convinced after, after talking with hundreds of parents, Paul Tripp says, that most parents lack a big overarching vision that guides all that they do with their children. We tend to have, and maybe when I ask that question about what is the ideal portrait of a child, maybe some characteristics began to pop into your mind. And Paul Tripp mentioned some, I want them to believe in Jesus, be obedient, maybe if we were honest, be athletic, be musical, sorry mom, be smart, get married, maybe we want them to have a good career because we don't want them to live with us forever. Or that kind of thing. Maybe all those things popped into mind. And really what happens though is that we have a bunch of fragmented ideas. But no grand overarching thought. Parents can be sincere about wanting these things. These things to happen in, in the life of their child. They can want them because they believe that they're best for their child. They may even have rules that help to enforce these certain behaviors, but it's a reactionary type of system. Paul Tripp goes on to say that the problem with reactive parenting is this. He really lists two key problems. One, he says, when they leave the home, they no longer have the system of control over them. Their lives will go where their hearts have been all the time, all along, essentially. So when we parent in a reaction type of way and we're just trying to, to keep them uh, uh, react to the things that are taking place, we end up creating rules, guidelines, not to say that rules or guidelines are wrong, but that's what we create. And when that's all that we've created, the problem, the first problem that Tripp mentions is that then it just becomes a system and when they get out of, of the control of that system, then their hearts can end up wandering. They end up wandering, I should say, where their hearts have been all along. The second problem that he mentions is it's a lack of a grand big vision. It tends to go to be way more determined upon the emotions of the day or the mood of the parent. Now, I have to confess, I underline that while feeling painfully convicted. He says that in the system like this, when we don't have some big overarching idea that's driving all of our parenting and we're just kind of reacting to the moment that instead of creating children that we want, what we create are weather forecasters, basically. And every day they kind of get a sense for where is dad emotionally today? Do I ask dad if I can play video games or mom? Do I ask mom for the car keys or dad? Instead of instilling in them what we truly desire. This becomes an emotionally driven, behavior-controlled system that misses the centrality of the heart and the transforming power of the gospel. So, as you can imagine, Paul Tripp says that the problem is not ultimately a law problem, but a all problem. Right? You see what he did there? It's an all problem. Central issue is a core dysfunction of the heart. Each child has a heart that is more in awe of himself or herself than God. The problem is is that we're born into this world believing things that are not true. And he lists a couple of lies that we are born into this world believing. One is that we're born believing that we are autonomous. Now, I don't think that any 
child that's just been born is saying, I'm autonomous. But if they are, they're probably pretty smart. But essentially they're saying, I'm an independent human being and I have a right to live my life the way I want to. Again, of course, they don't say that the moment that they come out, but it's no, it's not hard for a parent to see that a child is the center of his or her universe. She is the self-appointed ruler of her life. A child does not understand what's best, for instance, for him to eat. But that does not in any way deter him from telling his parents what he will and will not eat. A child doesn't understand the appropriate clothes that need to be worn, the seasons change and those types of things. But that does not deter them from assuming that they know exactly what outfit they should wear each and every day or, for that matter, whether they should be wearing any outfit at all. Right? It's the fact that a child will stand, as Paul Tripp says, with a parent that's four times their size and scream, no, right in their face. Which isn't cute, by the way. I feel, I, keep, I feel like I keep hearing this at times. Kids will be pitching a fit, telling their parent no, and then the parent looks over and goes, aren't they so cute? No, not really. The second lie that, that we're born into this world believing is that we're self-sufficient. I have everything I need inside myself to be what I am supposed to be, and to do what I am supposed to do. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, we continue to repeat that message to our children. We tell them to follow their hearts, and that they are just a bundle of potentiality. The worst, one of the carnal sins in our culture, is to not deny the dreams and desires of their heart. And if you'll listen to, for instance, some of these reality TV shows, when they do some type of competition, one of the most consistent arguments you will hear given for why someone should win the contest is that they want it. I have had a dream of being a singer. Forget the fact that three professional singers just told me I can't sing. I want this. I've, it's in my heart. This is my dream. This is my desire. How dare you tell me I can't do it? We hear sports players say this kind of thing all the time. I had all these haters out there that told me I couldn't do it. We preach this idea of self-sufficiency. Although young children have no understanding of the world around them, they will still resist help. Right? You've all been there. We've all been there in some setting or another. You're trying to open the door for your child. You're trying to help them tie their shoes. And you're refused. Why? Because they know what they're doing? No, because they can do it. They don't, need, they don't need your help. They believe that they're self-sufficient. Now, implementing rules and laws, Paul Tripp says, alone will not break the power of these lies. They are deep in the heart of our children. Our children will only live as God has ordained them to live if their hearts have been freed from the bondage of all of self and have been recaptured by the awe of God. If rules were enough, this is so key. If rules were enough, Christ did not need to come and the gospel is not necessary. If rules were enough, if a reactionary system was good enough, if just giving rules was enough, then Christ didn't need to come and the gospel isn't necessary. But rules aren't enough. 
So how do we help our children live with all? What we want to do is we want to show them that they're not autonomous, that they're not self-sufficient, but there is a God who is great and awesome, and He's the one they need to depend on. So how do we get there? Well, as we've talked about throughout the book, and as, for instance, Mimi mentioned tonight, we have been talking about the fact that we ourselves need to be constantly standing in awe of God and that His displays of all are all around us. They're in creation. I am with Mimi in the fact that I've just been amazed at some of the beauty of the days that we've had over the past several weeks. It's just been gorgeous outside. And simply because we're going through this study, there's been a few moments where I've just walking across the field in my very long commute from work to home. I stand there just in amazed at the sheer beauty around. There's all in the people that we interact with on a daily basis. There's all in the Word of God. And I hope you find that as you get up in the morning or maybe you do your time in the Word at night. And you're sitting there and you're not just reading words on a page, but you're amazed by the fact that an awesome, eternal God is speaking to you and that He went through all of this labor to preserve His Word so that you could know Him. So if we're doing that on a regular basis, then we can communicate that to our children. So the question that Paul Tripp asks is, how often are we talking to our children about God? How often are they hearing about God in our homes? Is it just on Sunday? Is it during family devotion time? Or are they hearing about God in connection to all of life? Are they seeing through us as their parents a natural connection between all of the little things that are a part of their lives, or if they're grown, big things that are a part of their lives? Are they seeing a very natural way in which as we guide them in conversation, we're directing them to God because we ourselves stand in all of God. And we can't help but have a conversation with them consistently about God because we see Him everywhere. It should be the way things are. If we understand, as we've talked about, as we've gone through this study, that creation is there constantly declaring the glory of God, then it's actually not unnatural. That's kind of what we tell ourselves. It's weird to just keep bringing God up. I mean, you could talk about clothes and television, but just keep bringing up God. I mean, it's kind of weird. We're not at church. You know, it's not family devotion time. But the truth of the matter is, is that all of creation is constantly declaring him. It's actually, if you study scripture, more unnatural to talk, to not talk about God than it is unnatural to, to talk about him. So we need to be talking about him. He needs to be way more than just something that our children are hearing about in family devotion time or at church or in moments of prayer, but something that we're constantly putting before them in all aspects of life. They are spiritually blind. They're born spiritually blind. They are capable of standing right in the face of all and not seeing it. And one of the responsibilities that we have as parents is to help them see. To give them eyes to see. To be an instrument in God's hands, I should say. To give them eyes to see His all. 
the other part of that, and this was the, the kind of the key application or one of the big ideas of testing how we as parents are doing and communicating all to our children is the question of authority. God has placed us as authorities in the lives of our children. So is the way that I use the authority that I have, whether it's that my children are still at home and I'm telling them when to shower and when to get dressed and when to go to bed, or is it that later stage in life when they're still supposed to honor and respect me? Are they seeing me use that authority in submission to a greater authority that I am constantly in awe of? Or do they see me abuse that authority? Do they see me abuse that authority because they're still living at home and I get frustrated with them and I've worked all week and there's good football game on and you just need to be quiet and go to your room and stop talking? Do I use that call that Scripture gives for them to respect me to make them feel guilty because they did, they decided to go visit someone else for Thanksgiving or Christmas or, or something like that and so I gotta start pulling on those heart strings and well you know uh, or do they see in the way that I use the authority that God has given me that I have a huge view of God and I understand that all of that authority He's given me as a parent is only ever to be used in submission to Him to shepherd them and to direct them in all of their lives towards Him. I don't know about you, but that one, that gets me. You and I cannot recapture the hearts of our children. Only God can. And only parents whose hearts have been captured by all of Him will hold on to that hope day in and day out as they work with their children. It's a constant process. Whether it's that our children are living with us now or they've moved on, it it doesn't end. The hope in the process of raising kids that stand in awe of God is my own awe of Him, myself. Well, I don't know that there's a smooth way to transition from that to talking about work, but that's the next chapter that Paul Tripp deals with. If anything, these are the super practical things of life. We all have to deal with family relations and we all have to deal with work in some way, shape, or form. I guess unless we've been retired for like 10 years or something like that. Used to fly planes or something, now we just play with chickens. I don't know who that would be. But But we actually all still have ways in which we are working. Paul Tripp starts the chapter by asking this question, can I be so bold as to ask you what's going on with your world of work? Is your life of work balanced appropriately? Do spiritual and relational commitments suffer because of your job? Could it be that you're asking work to do for you what it cannot do? How often do you feel torn between the demands of work and the responsibilities of family? It's an interesting thing, and I think culturally it's a very interesting thing, because when you ask Americans who they are, or when they think about who they are, almost immediately they define themselves based upon work, the job that they do, the tasks that they complete. Which is interesting, because I'm, I'm not saying that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world, but for instance in Senegal, a, a Senegalese person's identity is much more wrapped up in their family and in their family name than it will ever be in what they do. Now what they do is still important to them and I'm not saying that getting understanding yourself in relation to your job shouldn't have any part in your identity but 
it's interesting that it weighs so heavily on us. In fact, many times if we, if we ask ourselves, was today a good day? When you get down to that, many times what we're saying is, how much did I get done today? What tasks did I complete? Well, Paul Tripp says that one of the first things we tend to do when we talk about work and these things is we get into this question of priorities and we get into what he calls listology. I think that's a, well, spell check doesn't like it here on my iPad. But he gets into what he calls listology. Essentially, what we do is we begin to make lists. Well, I've got work is important and church life is important and family is important. And I come up with this list of all these priorities. And he essentially says that there's a problem with that, though. And one of the first problems with that is that none of us live listologically. Did you get that word? You can write that listologically. That is to say, none of us live a life where we get to begin Monday and we say, okay, Monday I'm going to take care of time with family And then I can check time with family off the list so that Tuesday I can move on to work and then Wednesday I'll get to some church stuff and then I'll wrap back around on Thursday and hit on family again. Does your life work like that? Mine certainly does not. It doesn't work that way. And so we can create these lists and try and come up with priorities, but the problem one problem is that our lives don't function in a list type of way. The other problem is, is that we're dealing with a limited amount of time. Time isn't like a capitalist economy. A capitalist economy doesn't have a limit on the amount of money it can have in it, right? You can create a new job and create a new source of income. Time kind of functions like monopoly. There's only but so much money that comes with the game. And once you've used it all, it's gone. You only got 24 hours in a day. And as much as we might beg and plead for a 25th hour or a 26th hour, it's not going to come. So we've got a limited amount of time. Life doesn't allow us to live listologically. And the other problem is, Paul Tripp mentions, is that listing our priorities doesn't get us to causality. The question we need to ask and answer is, why are so many of us so, why are so many of us closet workaholics? Why are we so driven by what we do in the careers that we have? Well, of course, that brings us then to this question of, of awe. Where am I getting my identity? Is my identity connected to success in my job? Am I buying into the lie through my work that I am what I have accomplished? In our culture, we love to celebrate successful people. In fact, I would say in American culture, we celebrate what we deem as successful people to an extreme fault. We will, if you'll listen, and I listen to sports broadcasters because I like sports, we will hear sports broadcasters speak of an athlete with accolades that should probably only be reserved for God, but they speak so highly of them. Meanwhile, we know that they have been an absolute moral failure. But man, can they catch a football. Woohoo! I mean, we just, we're enthralled with them. They're a success. And when they're interviewed at the end of the game, because they made the, the game-winning touchdown, and we just say, wow, you're just such a success, and we give them awards, and we say, man, you're great. We preach that, that idea to ourselves that success comes in what I've accomplished. 
But that type of success doesn't last. It will end at the end of the day or the week or when I finish that last checklist of things that I had to do. God comes in and says, you need to be defined by my grace, not your accomplishments. Maybe it's that my identity through work is coming in the power and control that I feel like it gives me. I'm in control, therefore I am, Paul Tripp says. In a world where you rarely know what is coming around the corner, it's tempting to see the good life as predictable and controlled. So how do you assure yourself that you will have the good life? The answer is easy, by working yourself into a position of power over people and things. We might think that this is an ideal way of doing things, of course, until you're on the other end of someone who's bought into this notion, and you're the one being controlled by another individual, a wife with a a dominating husband, an employee with a controlling boss. All of God teaches me that life is not defined by my power and control, but by the one who has all power and control, including over me. The last thing that he asks is, is, is my identity then bound up in affluence or possessions? Am I the size of the pile of stuff I have accumulated? What do we so often use to mark our cultural success? Well, probably immediately, again, especially in this culture, is the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the size of your house. We use all of those things to determine someone's success. We are physical people. We live in a physical world. And there are a lot of physically really beautiful things. And there is something to be said about fine craftsmanship. Right? I mean, the stuff that is nicer, the cars that are built well, tend to cost more. And that's okay to enjoy those things and to delight in those things. The problem is when we turn to them to give us our identity. It is only as we understand that our identity does not come from what we own but who owns us and what we possess in Him that we will find true fulfillment. What all of God teaches us about work is, well, Paul Tripp goes down a long list and I won't go through all of them, but I'll give you some of them. The gifts that you employ in your work, they come from God and belong to Him. We need to keep that in mind as we think about all. The time that you have invested in work belongs to the Lord. You are called to live for something bigger than yourself. And success is not about accruing power, but about resting in God's power. So as you think about the work that you have to do, how does it define you? Am I being defined by my work or is an awe of God what is defining me? And then work can have its proper place. Well, like I mentioned, like we started out with, we started out looking at this this uh, example here in John of a moment of all, I think. You know, when you think about Thomas as an apostle, what, what comes to mind? Doubting, right? Isn't that great? Isn't that the way you want to be known? If, of all the things, I really want people to know that I'm really good at doubting. Yeah, what else, what what other moments do we have of Thomas? And check, quiz you here. I had to look it up. I cheated, so don't feel bad. Yeah. Okay, excellent. What else? 
What else do we have in the Gospels about Thomas? Well, I'll tell you, there's nothing in Matthew, Mark, or Luke other than that he's in the list of the disciples. That was his, that was it in there. John is the only one that really tells us much about Thomas. And we just saw Thomas pop on the scene kind of the first time in the Gospel of John. And it's when Jesus says, we're going to see Mary and Martha because Lazarus has died. And what's Thomas' cheerful thought? Yeah, let's go die with him, guys. Come on. It's getting better for Thomas, isn't it? Yeah, that's where we see him. Let's go, let's go die with him. And then we'll see Thomas again in John 14. After Jesus has said, probably a verse that many of us know, that he was going away, but he was going away to prepare a place that where he is, we could be with him. And what does Thomas chime in with? It's John 14, verse 5. Yeah. Now, in this sense, I'm really kind of identifying with Thomas, because as you read through that, I mean, Jesus is like, you can't go where I'm going, and then he's like, I'm going, and then you're going to come be with me, and Thomas is like, I do not know what you're talking about. Where are you going? How in the world do we get there? We don't know the way. So this is Thomas. These are his shining moments. And then, of course, as we know him well, we know him in John, in John 20, And we've skipped over the initial appearing of Jesus to the disciples in what seems to be almost the exact same setting as the verses that we read. Except Thomas isn't there, right? Thomas isn't there, and Jesus appears, and then he's told about it, and what's Thomas' response? Yeah. He says, unless, verse 25, when he hears about this, he basically says, unless I can see and touch Jesus for myself, I won't believe. Now that's pretty astounding and that's pretty strong. And I can only imagine the things that are going through Thomas. That they had had other quote-unquote messiahs who had come. Men that had come claiming to be messiah. And the way that all of them had been disproven was that they had been killed. And now this Jesus guy had come along and these men had, had, had bought into the fact that he was the Messiah. Absolutely. And now what's happened to him? The Romans have killed him. So now he hears this, hey, he's alive. Who was the first one to get that report? Starts at the beginning of this chapter. Well, it didn't start with who you would pick as the key herald of the gospel. Tim Keller makes this great point. There was a moment in time at which a former demon-possessed prostitute was the only one with the gospel of the risen Christ. The first one that Jesus appears to and sees the risen Savior is who? Mary Magdalene. So then that message goes to Peter and John and on from there. But it... So Thomas is still waiting to hear this, and I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where you are, you're scared to believe something is true. Somebody's told you that it's true, but you're just kind of, you're you're nervous. You're not ready to accept the fact. Could it really happen? Could it be true? I don't know. We're not told a lot of what Thomas is thinking. 
But what I love is that again, Jesus appears in almost the exact same setting as best we can tell. Doors are locked. They're all sitting in there. And after Jesus announcing for them to, to stay calm, although he showed up and not used a door or a window, who does he address first? Thomas. Doesn't it seem like, and, and I don't know about you, but sometimes the God that I envision would not have turned to Thomas. He maybe would have given Thomas the cold shoulder. You didn't believe in me. You didn't believe, I told you I was going to come back to life. You didn't, I appeared to others. You didn't believe them either. Thomas, what is your problem? He would have either been mean or he would have given Thomas the cold shoulder, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus turns to Thomas and he says to Thomas, do exactly what you said you needed to do so that you believe. I know Jesus probably had other things he was accomplishing here, but I am absolutely guaranteed that Jesus was intent on Thomas being in all of him and was orchestrating this moment to capture Thomas's heart. After all that he had already done, he wanted to capture Thomas's heart. And we see that response. Because Thomas, as a faithful Jew, who would have all of his life said there is one God. One God. He would have repeated that over and over again. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is what? One He is one. There are not two gods or three gods. This Thomas, what does he say? My Lord and my God. There was there weren't lights. This this was this was very different than, for instance, Isaiah's calling. There wasn't a throne room with angels and all of this. This was a simple moment of touching and seeing. And a heart that was captured by all of God. The God that was standing right in front of him. I think as I read through this book on all, and one of the, maybe the last thing that I I really want to leave you with is whether it's in parenting, or whether it's in work, or whether it's while you're at school, or whether it's when you're out in nature, or whatever the case is, know that this great God, who is, Huge and awesome is not against you in this, but he is totally for you. And he is orchestrating your life in such a way to capture your heart with an awe of him. He's pursuing you like he pursued Thomas. And he's doing things, placing creation, placing the children that he's given you, the relationships he's given you, the life experiences that he's given you, because he wants you to stand in awe of him and for it to totally capture your heart. So that in every aspect of life, you do what Thomas did. You say, my Lord and my God. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful that we can write a whole book about being in awe of you and not exaggerate at any point because you are so great and so glorious that our language, our English language fails to praise you. Our, all of the languages of the world, if we were to put them all together, they would fail to praise you. And even our lives, Lord, 
We, we could live from this moment till the time that, that these earthly bodies give out in perfect obedience to you and it would still not come close to giving you the praise that you are due. You are so awesome. And one of the things, Father, that makes you, if it's possible, even more beautiful is your compassion and mercy and grace towards us. In some area of our lives, Father, we are all like Thomas. We doubt that you're big enough and capable to do what we've heard that you can do. Others have told us, but we fail to believe. And yet, in loving kindness, you pursue us to capture our hearts within all of you. I pray that we will, in whatever area it is that we're finding ourselves struggling, O oh Lord, May you turn our hearts towards you, that we would behold your glory, that we would see you as you are, and that we would cry out, my Lord and my God.